Okay. I, I've got this little book bag. You know, I didn't have uh, the same illustrations like Steve has. He usually brings in and out burger. But today we're talking about fasting, so I couldn't bring burgers. So I brought the Bible, which is the Word of God. It's good food for the soul, right? Yes, sir. And uh, one of the things I will... That, since Isaiah 58 talks about fasting, i just share a little bit of my experience. When I was about 28 years ago now, when I was an undergraduate and, and I was involved in a Christian fellowship group, and somebody in that group came to me and he said he thought the Lord had a message for him. This was his first experience with the prophetic word. and He said uh, he thought that uh, I and several other people in the group should fast and take the time that we normally would spend eating a meal and go and pray. So I thought, well, fasting's in the Bible. It's a good thing I should do that. So I, that was my first experience with fasting. I went and uh, instead of going to the cafeteria, I found a place by myself and prayed. And at that time, I was not that mature of a Christian. I was wondering how I could spend a whole hour just to pray. But the Lord was, was really gracious, and it was a wonderful time. And within a several years later, um, I felt the Lord was leading me. I would go out to the to the uh, park in the woods and go off the path and into place by myself and take a little book bag like this with me with a Bible and some prayer materials and just spend the day in prayer and it was really rich. But you know Isaiah in chapter 58 he's not really just talking about fasting. He's not talking about fasting so much as he's talking about worship that comes from the heart that's led by the Spirit of God. And if worship is led by the Spirit of God there'll be fruit from that. And the fruit of that he specifically talks about is that we'll have compassion for those who are poor and helpless. So about, uh, wait, I guess let me go back. We should pray. Lord, <laughs> Father, we thank you for this, uh, this, uh, this wonderful word that you've given to us. We pray, Father, that you'll help us to love those who the world rejects and doesn't take care of. We pray, Father, that you'll help us to see people's needs and have compassion and to reach out and to show the love of Christ in the world. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, about, uh, I think it was six months ago now, uh, Steve gave this very nice, uh, it's kind of a chart, and it shows... Jesus as the cornerstone of our lives, and every aspect of our lives is built upon that foundation. And he mentioned that Isaiah doesn't just address one little area of life and say we call it spiritual concerns. So we go, now we can think, well, we go to church, that's spiritual concerns. But actually, Isaiah addresses all different areas of life because our life is built on Jesus Christ. It's not just built one little part of it on Jesus. And at that time he was talking about uh, geopolitical concerns, but now we're going to talk about the area in Isaiah 58, he talks about his finances. Another area of background I just want to introduce is, who is you? When Isaiah talks about you, who is he addressing? He's talking to the nation of Israel, and this is a kind of a collective identity. You know, in America, we're kind of used to thinking of ourselves as individuals. And it's a little difficult for us to grasp the collective identity. But we do have families. Uh, It's okay. We do have families, and we talk about our family as being 
we do something together, right? And then in the, in the church, we are the body of Christ. We're brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus. And so we are one big family. And that's who God is, that's who God is addressing. That's who Isaiah is addressing here is the nation of Israel. But we can read it for ourselves as addressing us as a church, as a big family. Now, <clears throat> Martin Luther King Jr. addressed a lot of social justice concerns, so I wanted to uh, quote what he said about uh, group identity. Here he said, Lamentably, groups seldom give up their privileges voluntarily. Individuals may see the moral light and voluntarily give up their unjust posture, but groups tend to be more immoral than individuals. That's something to be aware of. Now when we come to the text, Isaiah has a little bit of irony in what he's writing here. And almost a sarcasm. In other words, the people were coming to, it looked like they were coming to worship God. But actually in their heart, they weren't worshiping God. They were going through the motions. So I'm going to read it from that perspective says, yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways, as if they were a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the judgment of their God. They ask of me righteous judgments. They delight to draw near to God. And verse 5, is such the fast that I choose, a day for a person to humble himself? Is it to bow his head like a reed and spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Will you call this a fast and a day acceptable to the Lord? So, when we're not really worshiping the Lord with our heart, what happens is we, we tend to focus on ourselves. So we can think, you know, Jesus pointed this out, the pride that comes in people's hearts, and they'll say, I fasted, I prayed, I read the Bible, I have right doctrine and somebody else doesn't. You know, there's this kind of pride that wells up in us. And so Jesus addressed a lot of the same concerns. And when he was preaching, he told the Pharisees that they were not worshiping from their heart. And he said here, Now then, you Pharisees clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside you're full of greed and wickedness. You foolish people... Did not the one who made the outside make the inside also? But give what is inside the dish to the poor, and everything will be clean for you. So what was wrong with their worship? It says here, Behold, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure and oppress all your workers. Now we spent, as a family, we spent the years 2004 to 2010 in China, about six and a half years altogether. And one of the things that happened when we first arrived, I was very much struck by the huge gap between the rich and the poor. People were driving fancy cars and you know, expensive imports, the cars that I would never think to drive, and yet the vast majority of the people had enough to eat but not much else. And that really made me think a lot about these kind of issues. Later on, as I started to learn the language, and at our company, we were hiring a lot of people. I wanted to interview the employees to make sure we were bringing the right people in. And they would come and talk to me. And I asked them, 
you know, why they were leaving the company that they were working with right now. And sometimes they would tell me, well, it's because they make us work a lot of hours of overtime, too, too many hours of overtime. And I was a little puzzled because there's a law in China. The law is that the most you can have a worker work is 36 hours of overtime per month. So if you work that out, it comes to a little less than 50 hours a week. So I thought, it's not that bad, you know, what's the issue? And they said, no, the, the problem is not the law. The problem is they make us work 100 hours or more of overtime, but they only pay us for 36 hours. So that's breaking the law in order to cheat somebody out of what you owe them. That's oppressing your workers. That's the kind of thing that Isaiah is addressing here. Another area that is a problem, he says, Behold, you fast only to quarrel and fight and hit with a wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice to be heard on high. And in verse 9, If you take away the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger and the speaking of wickedness, so there's a kind of contention that's going on. That's not the fruit of the Holy Spirit. That's not the leading of God in their lives. If they're really worshiping from the heart, it will show in their actions. And so here they are fighting with each other. And I I remember uh, some people that had spent many years in the Middle East. They told me that, uh, you know, during the month of Ramadan, when the Muslims have to fast from sunrise to sunset, it sometimes happens in the hottest part of the summer. And there's a hot part of the world, too. And most of the people just stay inside. They don't go out because it's so hot. But those that do go out, they said they would see them getting irritable and having arguments and sometimes fighting with each other. They had these issues going on. And that's the kind of thing that Isaiah is addressing here. They're not really worshiping the Lord. Their fast is just an external thing. Well, so we saw what fasting is not supposed to be. This is what Isaiah says is the true worship of God. What will it result in? He says, Is this not the fast that I choose to loose the bonds of wickedness, to unstrap the bonds, uh, to unstrap under the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house? And when you see the naked to cover him, and not to hide yourself from your own flesh. And verse 10, If you pour yourself out for the hungry, and satisfy the desires of the afflicted, then shall your light rise in the darkness, and your gloom be as a noonday. So I see here three elements of true worship of God. One is breaking the chains of injustice. So the oppression of the worker stops. And we deal with issues of abject poverty. And another aspect of injustice is when crimes go unpunished or innocent people are are punished for crimes they didn't commit. That's unjust as well. Interestingly, James addresses a lot of the same issues. Here he's talking about that religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless as this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress, and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Secondly, Isaiah mentions three basic needs 
that everybody has. Food, shelter, and clothing. Interestingly, John Piper, when he wrote about Isaiah 58, he commented that here these people were starving and afflicting themselves, but there were people who were starved and afflicted not by their own choice, but because they didn't have anything. He said, go and meet those needs first. Then you can worry about doing some, some kind of activity or fasting for yourself. Then he says, he addresses shelter. And he says, invite the homeless poor into your houses. Now, you can imagine, if you go downtown San Francisco and you invite the homeless people to come and live with you, what would be the first thing come to your mind? And the first thing that comes to my mind would be, what about my children's safety? Right, Because there may be issues there. And it probably wasn't any different in those days. So this is a pretty radical statement that Isaiah is making. But now, in today's society, we have organizations, we have homeless shelters that are set up by Salvation Army and City Team Ministries. And uh, these uh, give us opportunities to go and help to meet the needs of the poor and the homeless. And then we can still go back into the safety of our own homes. So we thank God that he's led people to do that, but God really places a high call on our lives. And Matthew, interestingly, here Jesus addresses the same basic needs, and he adds a few more here. He says, For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. And the third thing he talks about here is to keep the Sabbath holy. And a couple of weeks ago, we heard a very good message from Steve on Isaiah 56, where he talked about the Sabbath and keeping it holy. And it was very encouraging, at least to me. But one of the things about the Sabbath is that also dealt with the financial aspect of people's lives. Because in those days, they, there were other nations living in the, in the country with Israel. And the other nations, a lot of the time, were doing business seven days a week, buying and selling. And the Israelites could only buy and sell six days of the week. So they were at what would appear to be an economic competitive disadvantage compared to the other people. And it took faith for them to trust that God would provide for their needs, even though they obeyed him in this way. So, that's one of the things. Now, if by now you probably notice I've been quoting from Matthew and from James. The Bible really addresses the needs of the poor. And this is something that God is concerned about. It's a major theme in the Bible. In fact, Isaiah itself mentions justice 30 times and mentions the poor 13 times. In Isaiah 41, 17, here's the Israelites have been in exile. They, they've lost everything. And God has compassion on them. The poor and needy search for water, but there is none. Their tongues are parched with thirst. But I, the Lord, will answer them. I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. God himself is concerned about those who have need. He doesn't look away. He doesn't overlook us. And in fact, Isaiah 
is building on the law of Moses that God already gave to the people. And if you remember in the law of Moses, when they harvested their fields, they weren't supposed to harvest everything. They needed to leave a little bit behind. And that way the poor could come and and harvest what was left and they'd have something to eat. Every 50 years, people had to revert all the property back to the original owners. And that protected people. So if somebody had some misfortune happen to him, or if, even if through his own foolishness he did something and lost all his property or even sold himself into slavery, after 50 years, all the property would go back to his descendants. So the children and the grandchildren didn't have to get locked into a cycle of poverty that went on for generation after generation. God protected the poor. The prophets... Hosea, Amos, Jeremiah, Zechariah especially talk about God's love for the poor. And Jesus, in all the Gospels, you'll see that Jesus talks about love for the poor. But especially if you read through the Gospel of Luke, and I would encourage you to do that, just read through the Gospel of Luke and see how many times Jesus addresses the needs of the poor and taking care of those things. In the book of James, Remember at the beginning of James it says, if you're rich, you can take pride in your low position, and the poor can take pride in their high position, because God exalts the humble and lowers the proud. God doesn't see things the way the world does. And James has this theme going all throughout the book. You can read that as well. Now if we want to take care of the needs of the poor and feed them and shelter them and clothe them, then we have to rearrange our priorities in terms of our finances. We have to free up some money to be able to give. And so one of the things that um, I'm going to talk about here is this is a book called Radical by David Platt. And the subtitle is Taking Back Your Faith from the American Dream. In there he contrasts the American Dream with our faith. Okay? The American dream, their concept is I worked hard. I earned it. It's mine to enjoy. Sounds logical, but it's not biblical. The Bible says everything I have is a gift from God. He entrusted it to me. God blesses us in order that we can bless others. See, Ephesians 28 Uh, 428 captures this concept pretty well, I think. He who's been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with his own hands that he may have something to share with those in need. You know, in my company, if my boss has certain priorities, I'm going to think about how I can do my work to align with his priorities. I want to try to, you know, be part of the team, work well together. And how much more do we want to please the Lord of the universe, Jesus Christ? And Jesus loves the poor. This should be our concern as well. Let me give some examples. This is a friend of mine. His name is Andrew Calhoun. And he had worked his way up in his company to to be the vice president of HR. Um, This was a company that made the Happy Meal toys for McDonald's. And so he was 
he was pretty high up in his company, but he, he had this longing to meet the needs of the poor. God was speaking to his heart. started with his wife, and eventually he came around, and he went to the president of his company, and he said, I, I want to leave. I want to quit my job, and I want to go and meet the needs of the poor. And what he said, what the, the, vice, or the president of the company said, oh, we want to keep you, so we'll make you in charge of corporate social responsibility. And they actually sent him on assignment to live and moved his family to Shenzhen, where we were living. Well, over time, those priorities that the company had, corporate social responsibility is to make the company look good. It's supposed to help their bottom line, right? Well, his priority was to make God look good. And so he wasn't looking for places where uh, a lot of attention was given. He was going to the most remote parts of China where nobody really knew about the issues and the needs of the people. And that's where he could do the most good. Well, this tension grew to the point where finally he decided to quit his company, started an organization called Captivating International. And this is one of several ministries that they have. This is a Seng Children's Home. These girls are a Tibetan people group. And they live in a province in in an area of China called Qinghai in the north. It's a plateau and it's a very kind of desolate place. And nobody really cared for these girls. They, They didn't have any place to live. So they brought them into this children's home and gave them a loving environment. Another example is Sunshine Academy. Now, there were a number of ladies in our church in Shenzhen who went to visit the orphanage in Shenzhen. Every week they would go there faithfully. And they discovered that the kids there were not getting any education. The reason was the kids, if they went to uh, the schools, the parents of the other children would complain and say, how can you put orphans in school with my child? That's the attitude that people had. And the people in our church, the ladies in our church, realized this need. And so they organized and trained teachers to go into the orphanage and set up a school right there in the orphanage for the kids. So you can see these kids are happy now. They used to be just laying in their beds staring at the ceiling all day. They had nothing to do. Another example is Promised Land Special Education. This is a lady who goes by the Chinese name of Luo Laoshi. And... Uh, you know, she's, she set up this special education program for kids who have you know, mental disabilities, autistic kids. Uh, she's adopted one herself. And so she, um, you know, this is something that in China, nobody pays any attention to those needs. The family's kind of left on their own to try to deal with it. Well, some of these families can't, can't hold themselves together. They're, they're all, you know, so they have a lot of issues. She sent this email about Huang Lishan. She said before he came to Promised Land, he wouldn't wear pants. And he wouldn't sit down. He couldn't feed himself. He wouldn't walk. And his grandma came to her and he said, Lord Usher, if my grandson is willing to wear pants in two weeks' time, I'll be very grateful. And the same day, he was wearing pants. And within a couple more days, he was in the class. He was feeding himself, sitting at the table. There's a picture. He was doing just fine. So we thank God that he's led people to do things like this. Now, 
dear to our own church. This is an example, I think Steve just mentioned this morning, about the Morocco earthquake rebuilding effort. So in 2004, there was an earthquake that destroyed a lot of homes in Morocco. And our church, since 2005, almost every year has been sending a a team to go there and rebuild some of those homes. And especially has been focusing on building for widows. Now, you know, Willie made a visit here. Uh, Willie was the missionary in charge at the time. And he came to visit, I think, almost a year ago. And I remember one comment he made really struck me. He said, you know, it would have been great if you just sent money. We could build houses with that money. It probably would be more efficient because you wouldn't spend all the money on airline tickets. But there's so much value. It can't even be measured. There's so much value in having you people come and pour out your own sweat and work hard to rebuild those homes when the local people weren't doing it. It made such a powerful impression and the believers were so much encouraged and unbelievers were so impressed with the love of Christ that was shown. So that brings me to my next point. What's the result? If we love the poor, if our worship is leading us to carry out actions in our lives, what will be the result? Isaiah 58.8 says, Then your light shall break forth like the dawn, and your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Jesus said, he actually used the same analogy. He said, You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand. And it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. So that's the principle that Isaiah is bringing here. That when people see us obeying the Lord and doing the right thing, they'll praise God. So the question sometimes people raise is, where do we put our resources? In preaching the gospel or in social justice? And that, that's, that's not the right way to think about it. It's like this boy, he's hopping around on one foot. It's not a very good way to walk. If you want to walk, you want to use both legs. And that's the way it is with evangelism and social justice. God loves the poor, and the words that we speak and the actions that we take work together. So the words bring freedom. They bring life. And the actions that we carry out are evidence that the Holy Spirit has power. They're the demonstration. And they make it easier for people to accept the gospel message that we have. And the people who are critical, they look bad. Because here, people can see clearly that the love of Christ is being demonstrated. So it really makes it a lot easier. Let me demonstrate this from history. In China, in 1949, there were about 4 million Christians in China. By last year, 
by most estimates it was somewhere around 85 million. So that's a growth in the church of a factor of 20 in 60 years. I believe that it has a lot to do with the foundation that was laid many years ago, a hundred or more years ago. Missionaries in China, everywhere they went, they preached the gospel. At the same time, they saw the needs and they built orphanages and they built hospitals and they even built universities. They saw what people's needs were and they went and met those needs. And because of that, a lot of the infrastructure that China is growing from right now had been laid back then. People know their history. They know that something good was done by these Christians. And so when I would share the gospel with people, oftentimes they would say, oh, you're a Christian? You must be a good person then. (laughs) And I said, well, not me. It's Jesus who's good. But the fact that they believed that I was a good person, it shows that Jesus had made an impact on the impression of the, of the whole population in China. That's why people are open. That's why people listen and they receive the gospel so readily. Let me bring it to a personal level. Remember my friend Andrew, who set up the same children's home in Qinghai for the Tibetan girls. I went to visit him one day, and uh, we had a good time. And at the end of the day, uh, or at the end of the time that we were together, I, I, went, I was going to walk out and look for a taxi to take me home. And he said, no, no, no. He says, I'll call a driver. He'll come and pick you up. So the driver came. I went downstairs, got in the car. And as I usually did, I shared the gospel with the driver. And as I was talking about Jesus, the driver was listening to every word I said very carefully. And at the end, he, he had tears in his eyes and he said, you know, what Andrew and Julie are doing is wonderful. And I could tell right then, the reason why he was listening to the gospel so intently was because he saw it in action in Andrew and Julie's lives. That's how it works. That's what Isaiah is talking about. Now right here in in this building, we have a kids club where we get to preach the gospel to kids that go to this school. And the reason we were invited to do this, the principal of the school said, you know, you've served in community events, you've helped to clean up around the school, done weeding like we did yesterday, you've, you know, taken good care of the facilities, And because of that positive impression, she thought it would be really nice if they came here, if we came here, and taught the kids about Jesus after school. Isn't that wonderful? Isaiah says, Then you shall call, and the Lord will answer. You shall cry, and he will say, Here I am. If you take away the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger and the speaking wickedness, and pour yourself out for the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then your light shall rise in the darkness and your gloom be as the noonday. So here it says God will answer your prayers and he will meet your needs. And the Lord will guide you continually. 
and satisfy your desire in scorched places and make your bones strong. And you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. So, God will lead you. Here they were coming to approach God to seek his will, and he wasn't listening. But he says, if you worship me from the heart, and the fruit will be evident, then God will guide you. God will guide your every step. He'll be able to, you'll be able to hear his, hear his leading. Oops. In verse 14, it says, You shall take delight in the Lord, and I will make you ride on the heights of the earth, and feed you with the heritage of Jacob your father, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So your delight will be in the Lord. See, if you love the Lord, well, if you love the world, what you're looking for is comfort, safety, security. But if you love the Lord, you're willing to give everything for the kingdom of God. Money doesn't matter that much. And you're willing to give something away. See, if I trust God, I say I trust God, but I don't carry it out, how do I know that I'm speaking the truth? How do I really know? And when I write that check, or I go online and I make that donation, and I leave that money and walk away and don't look back, it's, it's a really good feeling because I let go of something that I don't need. And the result is I gain the great reward of Jesus himself, the Lord himself. What could be better? Now this is a, a graph of the stock market. This is Dow Jones Industrial Average. It's plotted from 1885 to 2001. It's a long-term trend. And it shows that the general trend is going up. So if we invest our money in stocks, eventually it should pay off. What, what does that say? The value of the stock market is what people put into it. So when I invest in the stocks, I assume that other people are going to invest as well and the value will grow. So that's people putting confidence in other people. And you can see there's some value there. But what about the kingdom of God? Oops. The kingdom of God is of infinite value. When we invest in the kingdom of God, our, God's, God will be glorified. Our light will shine. People will, will believe in Jesus. They'll be saved from their sins. People, people's needs will be met. The poor who are suffering will have their suffering alleviated. Those things are of infinite value. You can't measure that. You can't count that in dollars. So we, want, we don't want to be divided like this, you know, stretch one foot in each kingdom. We want to be wholeheartedly committed to the Lord. But that raises another question, probably in the back of some people's minds is, well, how much do I have to give away everything? Remember the rich young ruler, he came to Jesus, and Jesus said, go sell everything you have and give it to the poor and come follow me. And then you can have eternal life. And he went away sad because he wasn't willing. But I think if we ask the question, if we say, do I have to? It's the wrong question. Because that's not how God's kingdom works. 
It's by grace that we give. It's because we love the Lord. We do it because we want to, not because we have to. And so the question is, where's my heart? Jesus said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Where you put your money, that's a yardstick that measures how big is your faith. Where do I spend my time doing what kind of things? What do I talk about when I go out with my Christian friends? Do I love the Lord? Is He all-consuming in my life? You see, Jesus is Lord. He cares about the poor. Do we care about the poor? Now, this is Sparky. She had been. She used to go to this church, and <clears throat> she uh, she works for Youth for Christ, and they have kids clubs very similar to the one that meets here in this school. But she's been working with these kids clubs for a long time, and she she knows that in the Bay Area, there's only about five percent of the people go to church, and as a result, there's a lot of things that the kids have to deal with because they're growing up in families where there haven't been Christians before for generations. So there's a lot of kids that are growing up in families where there's divorce, where there's alcohol, there's drugs, and she has to deal with those things. And sometimes that's laying the groundwork that has to be dealt with in addition to sharing the gospel message. So we got to do both. And Paul and Karen, Aaron and Justin, they had city team food drives in their neighborhoods. What that was is they went around the neighborhood, gathered up, uh, they sent out flyers, and then a certain day they gathered all the food together that people donated and brought it to city team ministries and gave it away to help the poor. Chris and Ryan uh, invest their time with the homeless and they've asked us to bring something in to help to contribute to them. That's really great if we can participate in that. And also from this church was Robert Benson. He moved to San Diego a few years ago. And he started uh, children's homes, which were for kids that were on the streets. These were literally kids living on the streets. They got them off the streets into homes, put them together with adults, adult couples who would care for them just like parents and made like a family environment for those kids. That's a really great opportunity to give if you want to do that. But there's a level of poverty. I hate to show this picture, but there's a level of poverty that has to be addressed. It must be addressed. Because people are dying from starvation around the world. Now, let me go on, because it's not, you know, when you see things like that, a lot of times our response is to think, what can I do? I'm only one person. But remember, Isaiah was addressing all of us collectively. It's not about you as an individual. The body of Christ shines as we work together. And so if we're, each of us were giving enough to take care of 10 people's, very, very poor people's needs and get them out of poverty... If everybody did that, in a church this size, we'd be helping 1,000 people. And if all the churches in America did it, we'd be helping 600 million. Now, last year there were about 9 million people died 
from starvation and preventable diseases. But that number has been cut in half since 1960. So it's not hopeless. The church largely has been responsible for carrying forth this good work. So we need to keep at it. We need to keep working on it. And this kind of thing will be addressed. And by the way, that comes from a book. The statistics there come from a book called The Hole in Our Gospel. This is by Richard Stearns from World Vision. I highly recommend this book. Okay, so the challenge is to act on our love for the Lord. You know, we want to give to our local church, but we want to give to other organizations as well, those that represent Jesus Christ, because you want His light to shine. How much we give is really up to us. It's, it's what's in our heart. It'll come out. The Old Testament talked about 10% of our income. That's kind of a rough guideline. But John Wesley, he made enough money that he actually gave away 90% of his income and only kept 10% for his own living expenses. So probably most of us are not at that level, but we want to give as much as we can. The important thing is we want to set aside the American dream where the focus is on me and give to the kingdom of God. The focus is on the Lord. We want to share with one another where there's needs in the congregation, but we want to share as well with needs outside in the world. And even if we don't have a lot of money to give, we can volunteer, we can spend our time with these ministries. It's really wonderful. It fills us with joy when we do these things. Lastly, you know, I, I think we have a lot of things on our budget. And one of the things that keeps people from giving, it's kind of a big ball and chain, is credit card debt. And we want to get out from under that. But we want to look at our budget and think about some of these things maybe are not really necessary, or we don't have to have the highest level. We can live with something a little bit lower level of those things, and we can free up some resources so we can give more if that's where your heart is. And lastly, I leave you with this. 2 Timothy 6.8 says... But if we have food and clothing, we'll be content with that. Lord God, I pray that you'll lead us by your Holy Spirit, that you'll lead us to love as you do, that you'll give us the concerns and the desires in our hearts that you have, that you'll put your spirit in our hearts, that you will lead us, that you will satisfy us, that you will be our joy. Father, we pray that you'll be with us, that you'll bless this congregation and help them to bless others. In Jesus' name, amen.